welcome to this podcast by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. I'm Heather Rolfe. Today, the social policy team at NISA published a new report co-authored with Christopher Olstrom Beach at Birkbeck University of London on the role of evidence and perceptions in the debate on EU immigration. The report, funded by the Leverhulme Trust, was based on a series of in-depth focus groups with people in Sittingbourne, Kent. This is an area that registered a high leave vote in the EU referendum. We tested out ways of getting people to consider the economic evidence on the impact of EU immigration, and we used surveys to measure immigration attitudes at various points. To discuss the research findings, we've just held a packed event here at NISA, chaired by Gary Gibbon, the political editor of Channel 4 News, with a panel of experts. Like me, Gary spends a lot of time thinking about people's views on immigration, and I'm happy to say we persuaded him to stick around a little while longer to continue our conversation. So, Gary, one of our conclusions is that people are reluctant to change their views on EU immigration, even when faced with evidence about its largely positive economic impact. Why do you think that is? It's fascinating evidence that you've put together, and I think you'd have to say yourself, we haven't comprehensively answered the question, but you've, you've, you've started feeding into the answer. I think part of it is we, we must try to understand how much people absorb evidence on any policy basis. We live in a representative democracy where people franchise out their political decision-making to elected politicians. And quite often, if you talk to the people who have masterminded political campaigns in this country, they tell you, actually, the voters more or less form their opinion on who they're going to vote for mm. in an instant, a sight bite, as it is called sometimes, just a first indication of what someone looks like. Do they look strong or do they look weak? Mm. Or over a period, do they look strong or do they look weak, even if not in the first instance? Do we want more of the same or is it time for a change? It all boils down to that. And I think one of the things that your research made me think about was just how much do people in their busy lives, getting on with everything else, absorb the information which you and others are producing, the stats that are out there, mm. that are in the news bulletins every day, how much do they actually absorb of mm. that? And I think, I think this throws a lot of challenging questions. So do you think that the press has a role in informing the public better about EU immigration? Because we found people very poorly informed about some basic facts about immigration. For example, that EU migrants put in more in taxes that they take out in accessing services and benefits. And we heard a lot of lurid stories about migrants having priority access to services as well. What role do you think the press might have in countering people's misconceptions. I think in the world of the media, you've got to distinguish between the broadcast media, which is governed by legislation in this country, uh, to be impartial, balanced, fair, and uh, public uh, broadcasting has some other obligations as well to try and inform. And we, I hope, take those extremely seriously. We are under obligations to make sure that that, mm. uh, that debate is informed and impartial and fair. Newspapers are not governed by the same mm. rules and regs and it's interesting in America they did it the other way around they let uh, the broadcasters run free and uh, the newspapers are still under some okay. uh, con control but we went the we went the other route and I think it is extremely important that we contribute to that debate in a um, with as much impartial information as we can um, you might say we haven't consistently done that mm. 
Um, so there also might be a way, Gary, in which um, the media frame has a framing effect in framing immigration as a problem. So in our focus groups, people saw immigration as something negative. They viewed it through a negative lens. Even those who believed that EU migrants had a positive impact still seem to go up, the, go in for this negative framing. Um, and the media is often seen as responsible for negative framing of migration. But do you do you agree, or is the media just reflecting public concerns in its coverage of immigration issues? I, I think there's a lot to that, and I think if we go back and look over news bulletins, we're now talking. I'm now talking about um, broadcast. Uh, news in this country, um, you'll discover that the regular timetable of the immigration numbers when the stats come out is, is put in every uh, mm. uh, news diary and everybody plans to do a piece that day. And you could say it's reflecting concerns in the country, but it is also, if you do it very regularly, feeding them. Mm. And I think uh, you can get into a similar trap with coverage of the welfare issue. And I think there is uh, quite an area of common ground there that people should be concerned about. And should, mm. We should go back over our record and, and, and check what we've done. I think there's other things going on here as well. I mean, language, um, in, uh, using uh, the term migrant, um, I'm not sure whether the first thing that goes through someone's mind when they hear that word, the word association, is... For instance, someone who is a lot like them coming over here to work for a bit, pumping money to the economy, buy things, mm. um, support the local community and then go away. I think migrant has a... Had, particularly when the screens, as they were at the height of the referendum battle, were filled with pictures uh, of people in dinghies, mm. uh, whether it was uh, coming from Syria into um, Turkey or the Greek islands or, or from Africa going to uh, across the Met... Um, the word migrant just fed into this idea there's waves and waves of people coming here mm. and they don't know what they're going to do when they get here and an awful lot mm. of the migration uh, as we know is um, actually uh, much more transactional um, and uh, probably of great benefit to the British mm. economy there's another thing going on here as well though, I think, which is that news is about sparks friction mm. it's about when things go a bit wrong um, you know, millions of cartons of milk are delivered every day without anybody catching a disease. We don't report that. Mm. <laughs> it's yeah. just not newsworthy. When mm. things go wrong, we report it. And, and so in one, if, you, if you've got migration as part of your news digest of hot topics, like welfare, mm. you report when things go wrong. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. And I think one of the findings from the focus groups that we were most struck by was the association between migration and crime, which we had not expected. And that happened in virtually every focus group. So it wasn't just the people who were here illegally, um, but people who came to the UK specifically to commit crime, antisocial behaviour, acts of terrorism. And I do wonder with that, because um, so we did find this hierarchy of evidence where people relied on their own experience, anecdotes, the media. But I, I did wonder with that, actually, whether the, the media has a particularly strong framing effect. I, I would have to rummage in my memory to remember that much mainstream broadcasting that I've seen or heard that says crime wave from EU migrants hit Sittingbourne or something like that. I think we might there be talking about a different channel of information 
that people are getting, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's anecdotal, whether it's um, emails, whether it's uh, particular um, you know, algorithm targeting that they're getting through uh, Google or something like that, and specific news is being sent to them about stuff that the, the, the person in charge knows they're very interested in because I'm not sure we get a lot I'm not sure you can pin that you can pin a lot on the broadcast media and I'll you know, happily <laughs> self-flagellate in front of you but I'm not sure you can pin that on me I, I'm ready to stand corrected yes I mean so it could be more broadly the idea that migration is a threat and, also and that plays into that narrative I think so, and the idea that some people are here either illegally or illegitimately because they're not genuine asylum seekers, for example, or they have ulterior motives. And I think some of it was people's ideas that people come here to claim what isn't theirs in terms of benefits. This was the genius of the Leave campaign, the very well-researched, carefully researched uh, tagline, take back control. Mm -hmm. There was something people felt had gone that they couldn't rely on to do with the drawbridge was a phrase Mm. to do with the checkpoints or whatever. Who was coming in here? um, What were they coming in here for? Um, They tapped with fantastic uh, acumen Mm. into a tagline that worked, played into all those uh, deep fears that certain voters had. Well, absolutely, and we did hear the phrase, we've got to take back control, we've got to make Britain great again. We heard that many times in the focus groups from Leave voters, so those messages obviously did get through, influenced their, their voting, and um, played into, as you say, as, as you said, uh, their concerns and their views about, about immigration. But I think more positively, we found that people enjoyed our focus groups, and they did value the opportunity to talk um, to others, and so we followed them up after the focus groups, and they said how much they'd enjoyed them, and they got them to think about immigration, and they liked talking to people with different views, though it didn't seem so at the time, I have to say, um, but they felt that they did get quite a lot out of it. So do you think that the media could facilitate more open discussion about immigration, and then how could you, can insu- how could you ensure that that debate is constructive rather than going over the same old ground? Well, it's an interesting point, isn't it? And, uh, there, there is a great temptation, I talked about sparks and um, friction, and that's one of the things that makes news, it's one of the things that makes television. Mm-hmm. And I think you found in your focus groups that some people felt the high, highly charged debates that happened in the referendum campaign weren't actually that informative. Mm. It was a knockabout, it was a ding-dong. Mm. And I think uh, there, there is a danger that if you're bringing a whole load of people into a room to... Um, argue about something mm. <laughs> that, 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 that is what you're going to get um, so what is the best way to uh, make sure that people across the board, across all issues mm. are, are, are well informed, it's a perpetual search because you have to engage them and make them entertained as well, mm. and unless you have those friction points, you're not drawing them in they watched because they knew it was going to be a ding dong they didn't watch just to hear <laughs> one side uh, carefully enunciated, and then they complained that oh it was a ding dong and I didn't really um, uh, didn't really uh, manage to hear the arguments I think one of the things we can do is just steer politicians as much as possible off the the tiny rehearsed soundbite. You heard it again and again in those debates, mm. you hear it, of course, yeah. in the news. And there is a sort of mini download that they're trying to get in, and they're not trying to engage with the person opposite. I'm I'm a big fan of here we are having a slightly longer chat of long form interviews, mm. and I think they've been slightly banished from the scene. You yeah. see them on a Sunday morning. Mm. Uh, not many people see them on a Sunday morning, but you could if you chose to watch. Uh, and you see them on Channel 4 News. Yeah. You see them on some other outlets. But the big players have run away from them. Mm. Uh, the, you don't get 
senior ministers uh, subjecting themselves to this sort of discourse. Uh, so why do you think that is? Yeah, they hide. They, they hide. don't. They don't want it. They they mm. they actually have it sitting in uh, some of the guidebooks and. Um, that, that go out to ministries saying you know, the, the chief press officer has a thing saying on no account subject your uh, minister to an extended long interview you never know what could happen uh, and we understand there has been if we're being self-flagellating a gotcha sort of instinct amongst journalists to try and come up with the question that completely throws them off balance you know, mm. asking them five times seven or whatever it might be um, and so we've maybe played a role in that, but we need to come back together and sit and start the discourse again because uh, it is damaging our, um, our, our public discourse, I think, and mm. people just hear alienating sound bites. And, and we all know, none of us listen when we know someone is giving a rehearsed line in an interview. You listen when you think they're doing the tightrope walk. Mm. That's why people are drawn to politicians like Ken Clark. He doesn't know how his sentence mm. is going to end. And, and that, that, that is what normal life is like. It's how you converse with someone in the pub or on the street. And suddenly to have an automaton sort of addressing you, I think that is one of the things that makes politicians alienating, not listened to, on issues like the one you've been drilling into today. It's not by any means the only uh, reason, and you've, you've dug up a lot more in your research. But I think it is one of the factors, the way politicians speak, and they try and control their language so much that they end up getting nobody listening. Mm. And the public in our focus group said they very much wanted to be listened to and they felt that they weren't uh, listened to enough. So possibly involving them more in media debates would help? Or do you think involving the public in these media debates via things like audience participation, do you think, do you think that helps? Or do you just think, again, you encourage people with polarised views? Um, well, I, I, I don't know about that. What I do know is that there has been, in the last few years... Uh, real uh, ratcheting up of the number of uh, ordinary public voices that you have in news bulletins. Mm. You would never have seen that uh, years ago. But now, if you look at mainstream bulletins on the BBC, on ITV, on Channel 4, there is a sense that we have to reflect the voices that are out there. So in a news bulletin, which is something I'm marginally better qualified to talk about than a discussion programme, um, you do make sure that you have those voices in there. Mm. And I find it one of the most stimulating parts of the job is being in a place like Sittingbourne, um, finding out what people actually think, the, the reflexes, the language they use. The, mm. uh, and sometimes it's the first answer that absolutely they, they tell you everything. Sometimes it's the third or fourth when they reveal what they really think. Yeah. But um, the, 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 those exchanges are fascinating. And I think television has been trying a bit to address that in my bit of the... Um, Factory in news bulletins by having real, real people conveying this all. And I think one of the things you talked about, how we were talking about in the discussion this morning, how um, maybe there was an omerta uh, in in the media not talking about immigration issues mm. uh, for years in the mainstream broadcast media. Uh, BBC has had a lot of um, uh, uh, deep thought about this, looking back, and some broadcasters have opined on it. Um, I think there was. Uh, a bit of a shutting down of that mm. discussion. You didn't you didn't talk about people's concerns. It was all a bit of a murky area. You don't go there. And I think that bottled stuff up and contributed because there they were meant. The BBC is meant to be their world reflected back to them mm. as well as learning and you know allowing them to find out other things. But that's one of the components of what the BBC is meant to be. And it, and and I think they feel. And I'm not just pinning it on the BBC. I think it goes for others amongst us as well. Um, that wasn't happening. Mm.
Yeah. And finally, if we're talking about balance, what about the voice of migrants themselves? I mean, we hear a lot from employers about why they need to recruit migrants, and we, we hear a reasonable amount from the, from the public and from politicians, but it seems to me we hear very little um, from migrants themselves, particularly EU migrants, and about their motives for being here, their expectations about the future. Um, do, you, do you agree? Do you think the media could do more to cover that? I do. It is something we talk about on Channel 4 News, and we try yeah. to address it on Channel 4 News. Uh, I can't speak for a other outlets, but uh, I think it's a very good point, and we're very conscious of it. And I think they, uh, that community has been uh, pretty good with some particularly forceful um, groupings uh, mm. since the referendum, trying to make sure that citizens' rights are protected and the rest of it. Um, but maybe we should have done a bit more before that. Mm. Um, maybe the horse has bolted. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Gary. That's all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to read more about our latest report on the role of evidence and perceptions in the EU migration debate, please go to our website at www.nisa.ac.uk. In the coming days, we'll also be posting a number of blogs about our findings, so watch this space. For now, goodbye.